0: The worthy Podcast. Join me Antonio Palacios each week as I guide you through a never-ending sea of obscure cinema and cultworthy gems that deserve a rediscovery. Find me on all listening platforms and at the cultworthy.com. The Cultworthy Podcast. Join us. Oi. <laughs>
1: Hello and welcome to Casting Views, a podcast where we pick a random subject each week and we cast our views on it. I'm Dan. And I'm Lou. And this week, having said all that, it's not so random subject because if you were listening last week, you'll know this is actually part two of a (laughs) two-part, which we've had to stretch out. Well, we've had to split into two because there's just too much to fit into one. In fact, I saw I'd, we'd be able to get three examples into episode one we only got two so we might actually make this a three-parter probably by the end of this <laughs> if you haven't listened to part one don't go anywhere listen to this you don't need to have heard part one but go go listen to it afterwards and a few more episodes from our back catalogue so psychological experiments what did we discuss last episode Lou I discussed the robber's cave experiment and you discussed the, is it the milligram Milgram um, Milgram, shock
0: experiment, obedience experiment.
1: I'm going to start off with one. It sounds quite violent, but it wasn't. Nobody got hurt. It's called the car crash experiment.
0: I've heard of it, but I can't remember the ins and outs.
1: Right. So this was conducted by Elizabeth Loftus and John Palmer. And this was in 1974 at the University of California in Irvine. Now... This I found fascinating because again, there wasn't people weren't subjected to a car crash, but what Elizabeth Loftus had been interested in was how information can affect an eyewitness's account of an event. Okay. So her main focus was on the influence of misleading information in terms of visual imagery and wording of questions in relation to eyewitness testimony in court cases. Her findings seem to indicate that memory for an event that has been witnessed is highly flexible. If someone is exposed to new information during the interval between the event and recalling it, the new information may have significant effects on what that person recalls. The original memory can be completely modified, changed or supplemented. So the aim of the car crash experiment was to test the hypothesis that language used in eyewitness testimony can alter memory. So What they did in 1974, again, remember, so this is, again, 50 years ago, just almost just under 50 years ago. They got a group of people and asked them to estimate the speed of motor vehicles using different forms of questions. Estimating vehicle speed is something people are generally poor at, so they may be open to suggestion more than um, if they were asked anything else. So 45 American students from the University of Washington formed a sample group. This was a laboratory experiment with five conditions and only one of which was experienced by each participant. Seven films of traffic accidents ranging in duration from 5 to 30 seconds were presented in a random order to each group. After watching the film, the participants were asked to describe what had happened as if they were eyewitnesses. They were then asked specific questions, including the question about how fast were the cars going when they, and then the question was, Differentiated by when they smashed each other, when they collided with each other, when they bumped each other, when they hit each other, or when they contacted each other. So the keywords smashed, collided, bumped, hit, and contacted. So the estimated speed was affected by the verb used, and the verb implied information about the speed, which systematically affected the participants' memory. So I'm not expecting you to guess the speed, but Which word out of smashed, collided, bumped, hit or contacted do you think would have rated with the highest speed?
0: Oh, smashed, definitely. Smashed,
1: yeah. That was top with the average speed of that being 40.8 miles per hour. Okay. We'll go to the other end. What do you think would be last with smashed, collided, bumped, hit or contacted?
0: It's got to be collided or hit. So I think collided. I was actually contacted. No way. Wow.
1: So, so the smash was top 40.8. Collided was second with 39.3. Bumped was 38.1. Hit was 34. And contacted was 31.8. So.
0: I'm sorry. I said collided, didn't I? I don't know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So just in, in that, just in the changing of one, uh, one word. You've had a, an average speed of nine miles an hour difference, so from 40.8 to 31.8. So the conclusion was the result showed the verb conveyed an impression of the speed that the car was travelling at. And this, of course, then all of the participants' perception. So the interesting factor here is that eyewitness testimony might be biased by the way questions are asked after a crime is committed. Loftus and Palmer offered two explanations. You've got response bias factors. So the misleading information provided may have simply influenced an answer a person has given, but didn't lead to a false memory. For example, the different speed estimates occur because the critical word smash or hit influences or biases a person's response. Or the memory representation is altered. So the critical verb changes a person's perception of the accident. Some critical words would lead to someone having a perception of the accident being more serious and this would then be stored in that person's memory. Um, If the second explanation is true, we would expect participants to remember other details that are not true. Now, to then add on to this, they then did a secondary experiment. 150 students were shown a one minute film which featured a car driving through the countryside followed by four seconds of a multiple traffic accident. Afterwards, the students were questioned about the film and the independent variable was the type of question asked. It was manipulated by asking 50 students how fast were the cars going when they hit each other, another 50, how fast were the cars going when they smashed into each other and the remaining 50 participants were not asked the question at all. They then sent them away and a week later, they went back to them without showing them the film again they answered 10 questions, and one of which was a critical question that was put in there and said, did you see any broken glass? Yes or no? People that were told smashed, that you know, the cars smashed into each other, 16 out of the 50 said they saw broken glass. Of the group that were told hit, seven said they saw broken glass. And of the control group, six. Now, there was no broken glass in there. <laughs> Again, it just shows that memory is easily distorted by questioning technique and the information acquired after an event can merge with the original memory causing an inaccurate recall or reconstructive memory. As we've done previously, I think to be fair, there is quite a bit of critical evaluation here. I think one of the biggest, if, if we're going to look at critical findings of this, I think one of the, thing, the important things has been argued is that these people didn't actually witness the event they were, they were shown a video so the okay. argument is if you actually were out in real life and you saw a car crash in front of you you would possibly recall events better maybe because you've actually seen it and it and it shocked you whereas if you're seeing a 30 second clip in a in a in a lab somewhere you may not be paying full attention or it may not be as impactful to you cuz it's on a small screen I find it quite interesting because it's it's obviously got important findings for police questioning of witnesses.
0: Because the thing is as well, these, yeah, because they're not, it's not like they're leading questions. It's just the method in which you frame a sentence, like the, the, the literal word makeup of a sentence that's significantly distorting the way that people are remembering something. And it's really interesting to think how, how, you know, when you look at like the legal profession, which inevitably we'll get into, how that's manipulated to to kind of fit an agenda.
1: Well, it has had real world implications. So based on the evidence of this experiment, the Devlin report of 1976 recommended trial judges be required to instruct juries that it's not safe to convict on a single eyewitness testimony alone. Yeah, this is what I said here. One limitation of the research is it lacked mundane realism or ecological validity, they called it. So... Participant viewed video clips rather than being present at a real-life accident, so there's less less emotional. In an experiment, you may well expect to be asked questions about what you are watching, and this may make you attend to the film in a different way. In real life, there may be consequences arising from the answers that you give, and this may put pressure on the witness. Again, it's it's an interesting one. A study con- conducted by Yule and Cutshaw in 1986 conflicts the finding of this study, they found that misleading information did not alter the memory of people who had witnessed a real armed robbery. This implies that misleading information may have a greater influence in a lab setting rather than in the real world. So again, it seems to be that the biggest the biggest criticism is, are you as invested in what you're seeing if it's shown on a video rather than it's occurring to you in real life?
0: Right, okay.
1: The only other main criticism was it, it used students as participants and they criticise saying students are not representative of the general population in a number of ways. Importantly, there may be less experienced drivers and therefore less confident to estimate speeds. What I liked about this, because whilst it's not, you know, some of the ones we've mentioned and going to mention are quite, quite serious, quite, there's a lot of emotion in there. This one feels really simple, but the findings are huge. So again, it is how, how we can be led just by the wording used in a question towards us.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah.
1: You know, and, and we do it all the time. I mean, how many times you see a football game? Yeah, we're going to use this football theme because it's probably something that comes easy <laughs> to us. Oh, we smashed that team. It was like, it was two nil.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It wasn't four or five, six nil. Say you win six nil and you say, oh yeah, we beat that team. Well, you didn't beat them. Yeah. Technically you did, but most people say, yeah, we, we thrashed them. So, the wording in football as well gives it a much bigger emphasis and also potentially how entertaining it was and how dominant one side was over the other.
0: Well I guess if you again when, when you talk about sports like boxing you'd say oh he batted him it's like no he won on points <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean it, it's kind of it's kind of like similar things isn't it how you turn around and manipulate a situation but again even with sports um and the way that you know like pundits might look upon teams they use particular like more favorable language when it comes to a particular team
1: and like i said i i think it is is fascinating because we do require in this you know well in in a number of countries you know where you've got trial by jury yeah you know you do need the questioning then to be quite straightforward and generic because just one word can have Ten, almost ten mile per hour difference in how people estimated the speed of cars in this experiment. It's quite frightening and also fascinating at the same time because it's perception. Something you've seen, your perception of it can be altered just by a word.
0: Yeah, but again, even when you look at like not even necessarily the the word that they're using to describe the accident. When you, if I was to ask you what speed that car was travelling at or how fast that car was going. If I was to say how fast that car's going, you'd probably say, oh, yeah. 50 miles an hour. What speed was it travelling at? Probably 35. Do you know what I mean? That's also it, yeah. it, it, when yeah. you think about it, there yeah. are so many things in the sentences that you can change to just illustrate with different words to describe what was happening that would then have an impact on the way that somebody views a situation. So it's like, for instance, you know, with with particularly um difficult criminal cases, for instance, you would describe somebody as being. it was a horrific act as opposed to it was just a murder. Because for some reason murder sounds more factual and when it's reported by the media, for instance, the horrific crime, it's a sadistic act, it's not just a murder. Does that make sense? And so as a result, again, it makes you treat someone with more contempt based on the fact that you've had more aggressive language that comes with it. It's really interesting.
1: And even... You know, the fact that they then did a secondary experiment where they then asked them a week later, and I love the fact that it was a week later, you know, and without then showing the video, because I I don't know, I'm going to guess it in a court case, you're being brought back much, much later than a week after an event, right? It could be months, if not years, potentially, right? Yeah. So the fact that then a question about the glass has resulted in, in people saying they saw something which clearly wasn't there. And so you wonder (laughs) if it was longer, like if it was two, three, four, five weeks, would that have been higher maybe?
0: Yeah, it does make you wonder as well as to whether or not you can actually actively recount like use witness testimony as any form of substantial evidence when it comes to like potentially putting someone away for life when it comes to criminality and you think you know because a lot of court cases go on for months don't they they might not call witnesses for six months until afterwards and how difficult is it for somebody to recount what they saw accurately just in and of itself after that period of time let alone with someone using not leading questions but language that leads a particular conclusion
1: and this then does, I mean, this this wasn't what the experiment was about, and I've got no facts on this, but it's like, could you also then be swayed by the build of a person? So if it was supposed to be like a, a crime where somebody physically broke into a house or smashed the door down, if the person was slight, would somebody look at that person and think, well, they, they couldn't do that, but if they were bigger... I think well, that's a big that's a big bloke. Maybe he, he he could have you know I believe he could have smashed the door down. It's worrying. It's fascinating, and glad it's led to some change in how questioning takes place. But yeah, you've got to you've got to hope that it does actually get applied in all instances,
0: right? Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a really strange, and again, it just makes you wonder, like how how have you do you think that you've ever been affected by language like that previously in your life? If you could ever think to a situation where someone's turned around and said, "Oh, do you remember that?"
1: Probably have, you know, just in the football thing alone, I probably did maybe get swayed, or maybe my memory of a game maybe does get changed if I talk to people and like they're all saying oh, yeah, we absolutely thrashed and maybe made me think more of a game than it actually was. I don't know. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Yeah.
1: But, yeah, that, that was my first one.
0: That's actually very quite cool. Now, if we're going to move on, I've I've got one big one and then one little one that we can tag on, but I feel like I'm going to spend far too long on the big one to then tag one, my, my little one on. Um, So we'll go with it again. I've actually seen this psychologist in real life and went to listen to him talk. Now, this is probably the most famous psychological experiment I think ever conducted. And it's by a Dr. Philip Zimbardo. And it was the Stanford prison experiment. I okay, imagine yeah. you heard made yeah, popular yeah. Yes. by a film and that sort of thing now. And again, I actually went to see him talk. This was while I was at school. It was a brilliant experience. And I think he was about 80 at the time and I think he's still alive. So he's probably about 107 now. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was an experiment that was conducted in 1971 and it was really to to test and, and find out whether brutality reported in in prisons in America amongst prison guards was due to sadistic personalities or had more to do with just the prison environment. So did these people have a predisposition to violence or was it completely situational? So, for instance, a prisoners and guards may have personalities which make conflict inevitable because prisoners lack respect for law and order and guards are particularly, you know, aggressive i guess because that's that's kind of the personality type that probably fits a job like that so in order to study the roles people play in prisons zimbardo converted a basement of stanford university into a mock prison so the environment in and of itself the the Prison cells were set up to hold three prisoners each. So there was a small corridor for a prison yard, a closet for solitary confinement. Which, when I say closet, if you've watched the footage, because there is footage of it, it is literally just like a tiny little book cupboard. It's awful. And bigger rooms um, across the prisoners, uh, across from the prisoners for guards and the warden. So the experiment was conducted in a thirty-five foot section of the basement. Um, The prison had two fabricated walls, one at the entrance, one at the cell block wall for observation. And each cell was six foot by nine foot or 1.8 metres by 2.7 metres, was unlit and was intended to hold three prisoners and had a cot for each prisoner. So when you think about that, 1.8 metres by 2.7 metres is a really small confined space also. Um, They were confined to stay in their cells and in the yard all night until the end of the study all day and all night until the end of the study in contrast the guards were allowed to stay in a different environment separate from the prisoners they were given to access areas for access for breaks and that sort of thing and they were working in teams of three for eight hour shifts and they didn't have to stay on site after their shift ended so they were just free to leave and go about their business basically now they picked them from a group of 75 applicants who answered an advert to participate in a study on the psychological effects of prison life so there was a number of interviews and personality tests to eliminate candidates with psychological problems medical disabilities or a history of crime or drug abuse so they basically wanted anybody that might have had any disposition to some level of criminality or antisocial behavior eliminated from the candidates that they selected so they selected 24 men who were judged to be the most physically and mentally stable the most mature and least involved in all of these behaviors and they didn't know each other prior to the study at all. So none of the students knew each other. They were actually paid $15 a day to take part in the experiment, which wasn't bad for the time, 73. So participants were actually randomly assigned either the role of prisoner or guard in a simulated prison environment. Um, and there were two reserved. So there were finally so two reserves and one dropped out. So it left 10 prisoners and 11 guards. Prisoners were treated like every other criminal. They were actually arrested at their own homes without warning and taken to a local police station and properly booked, fingerprinted, pictured, all of that sort of thing, just picked up from their homes. I actually think that in the film, they depict it as like somebody having a bag thrown over their head as well, but genuinely did happen wow. like that, which in and of itself unethical as hell. So they were blindfolded and driven to the psychology department of Stanford, where he had a, the basement set out as the prison. Barred doors and window windows, bare walls and small cells. And basically they began a process of de-individual, de-individualisation. <laughs> you can cut that together and speed that a bit up to make it sound better. So when the prisoners arrived at the prison, they were stripped naked, de-loused, had all their personal possessions removed and locked away. They were given prison clothes and bedding and they were issued a number with a, uh, sorry, issued a uniform with a number on it and they were only to be referred to by number So the use of ID numbers was basically a way to make prisoners feel anonymous. So each prisoner had to be called by his ID number and could only refer to himself and the other inmates by number. They had no underclothes, so they literally just wore like the prison garments and then they had like a nylon cap to cover their hair and they had like a chain around one ankle as well. So all guards were actually dressed in identical uniforms and carried a whistle and a billy club borrowed from the police. A billy club is, I imagine, just a truncheon. They also wore sunglasses to make eye contact with the Prisoners Impossible, so dark, like tinted sunglasses, so you couldn't see eyes. So Zimbardo observed the behaviour of the prisoners and guards. Now, I think one of the most controversial points about this experiment is the fact that Zimbardo actually didn't sit outside of the experiment because he also played the part of prison warden which he, he shouldn't have done because if you're going to observe people psychologically and you're conducting an yeah, yeah. experiment, you should take yourself out of it. Because again, even you can't view it objectively if you're playing a part in the situation. So yeah, yeah, the guards were instructed to do whatever they thought was necessary to maintain law and order in the prison and to command the respect of the prisoners. However, no physical violence was permitted. Now, do you want me to go through the day by day? Because it was supposed to last 14 days, however, was actually cut short. So do you want me to talk a little bit about what happened day by day? Yeah, if you you give us some highlights. Okay. So day one, obviously, they were all taken their fingerprinted. This was the same day they were fingerprinted. They were greeted by the warden who conveyed the seriousness of their offences and their new prisoner status. They were explained the rules of the prison and inmates retired to their cells for the rest of the day. So the first day was pretty chill. On the second day, guards were referring to prisoners by their identification and confined them to their small cells. At 2.30, the prisoners rebelled against guard wake-up calls of whistles and clanging batons. So what the guards were doing is waking them up, basically. And the prisoners refused to leave their cells and eat in the yard, ripped off their number tags and took off their stocking caps and insulted the guards. In response, guards sprayed fire extinguishers at the prisoners to reassert control... (laughs) And the wow. three backup guards were called in to help regain control of the prison. Guards removed all of the prisoners' clothes, removed mattresses, and sentenced the main instigators to time in the hole. They attempted to dissuade, to dissuade any further rebellion by using psychological warfare. And one of the guards said to the other that these are dangerous prisoners. So bearing in mind that this is day two, I guess maybe you could put the rebellion down to the fact that, oh, we know we're in an experiment. It's a bit of a piss take. You know, we can turn around and, and you know, kind of get away with this almost. So day three, in order to restrict further acts of disobedience, the guards separated and rewarded prisoners who had minor roles in the rebellion. The three spent time in the good cell where they received clothing, beds and food, which were denied to the other population. And after an estimated 12 hours, they returned to their old cells. Guards were allowed to abuse their power to humiliate the inmates. They had the prisoners count off and do push-ups, arbitrarily restricted access to bathrooms, and forced them to relieve themselves in buckets in their cells. Now, it's only day three, and it kind of feels like the rules about not using physical violence are kind of already being <laughs> broken here. Then, the first prisoner to give up after 36 hours had an apparent mental breakdown. So I'm going to quote this, because again, it was all caught on camera. He said, Jesus Christ, I'm burning up inside. I can't stand another night. I can't take it anymore. So upon seeing this, um, the re- one of the research assistants immediately released this prisoner. Now, I'll talk about this a little bit later on anyway, but... Later on in the, in an interview, the prisoner that said he wanted to be released just said that he did it just so he could get released. But Zimbardo basically said, no, I'm calling out that guy's bullshit because in 1992, he talked about how it had really affected him. So there's doubts as to whether or not it was actually genuine or as to whether or not he just used it as an excuse to get out of the experiment. However, right. I think it was probably genuine. And there's probably a little bit of an embarrassment about the fact that he'd left, maybe, that kind of came about from it. I think so. Yeah? Yeah. I think that that think would be fair. Out, yeah. So day four, witnessing the guards dividing prisoners based on their good or rebellious behaviour, the inmates started to distance themselves from one another. Rioters believed that the other prisoners were snitches and vice versa. Other prisoners saw the rebels as a threat to the status quo since they wanted to have their sleeping cots and clothes again. Prisoner 819 began to show symptoms of distress. He began crying in his cell. A priest was brought to speak to him, but he declined to talk, instead asked for a medical doctor. Zimbardo reassured him of his actual identity and removed the prisoner. When he was leaving, the guards cajoled the remaining inmates to loudly and repeatedly decry that 819 is a bad prisoner. Now, apparently, when Zimbardo went and spoke to this prisoner, he he took on the role of having a, a discussion with him and trying to reassure him. But the prisoner wanted to leave and Zimbardo made the decision that he needed to go. The moment that Zimbardo said that he could go, it was like the guy had never experienced anything terrible because it was like all of a sudden Zimbardo was no longer a prison warden. He was just a man who was doing experiments and he was a normal guy again, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So day five, the day was scheduled for visitations by friends and families of inmates in order to simulate prison experience. Zimbardo and the guards made visitors wait for long periods of time to see their loved ones. Only two visitors could see any one prisoner and only for 10 minutes while a guard watched. Parents grew concerns about their son's well-being and whether they had enough to eat and some parents left with plans to contact lawyers to gain the early release of their children. Zimbardo's colleague, Gordon Bauer, actually arrived to check on the experiment this day and questioned him about the independent variable nature of the research. And a Christina Maslach I think I've pronounced that correctly, also visited the prison that night and was distressed by observing the guards abusing the the prisoners. So she saw them forcing them to wear bags over their heads and a number of other things. There was actually one particular prisoner who was much more sadistic than the others. And I actually believe that he made them recreate like sex acts on each other. Not actually happening, but he made them act out like sex acts on each other and like strip, yeah, 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 pretend. And made them like strip naked. And he was particularly... Um, I do think they had a name for him, but I couldn't remember it. And so Maslach challenged Zimbardo about his lack of caring oversight and the immorality of the study. And she made it evident that Zimbardo had been changed by his role as superintendent or warden in the prison. And she said to him that he was somebody that she didn't recognize and didn't like. On the Friday, which was day six, um, Zimbardo actually ended the study early. He let them know that the experiment was over and arranged to pay them the full fee for the 14 days, which actually is the equivalent of about 1500 quid nowadays. Zimbardo then met for several hours of the debriefing with all of prisoners and the guards and finally everyone came together to share their experiences. And then they again returned a week later Um, basically everybody behaved normally once they were out of the situation again the guards went from being really sick and sadistic twisted blokes to all of a sudden just being the students that were attending the university and similarly as opposed to having mental breakdowns the people that were the prisoners just returned and had normal conversation with the people that were abusing them again it kind of links to what we'd um, what I'd seen when I actually went and saw Zimbardo and also his book The Lucifer Effect if you've ever read that would recommend it to anyone listening basically about the fact that it's more so a case of bad circumstances making people bad as opposed to bad people inherently being bad. So he used the examples of prisoners' treatment in Abu Ghraib, do you know the Iraqi prison? Yeah, and yeah, that was where yeah, like the yeah. American soldiers had basically been convicted of like inhumane treatment against um, prisoners. And yeah, his main takeaway from the experiment was the fact that it was a case of it's not necessarily that bad people are bad, it's that bad situations make them bad
1: this just feels almost like an unnecessary experiment in a sense, because it always feels like a mix of the two we spoke about in the first episode, doesn't it? About the kids forming groups and then the, the the Milgram one about would people do bad things, but it just feels like there's a good idea, but it just feels like it was allowed to go to the extreme. Yeah.
0: I think that that's what it was. There was no limit on, on, but however, what I would say is that was, you know, they set out the parameters to the guards from the beginning. They said, No physical abuse. This is the way that you're going to behave. But take on the role of a prison guard. Quell any problems, but you can't do this. And I think it's because, again, they've just allowed the progression of what is the human behaviour if that makes sense, like this is obviously horrifically ethical and there is actually so many ethical concerns, it'd be impossible to talk about them all. Yeah,
1: un- unethical. So yeah, unethical. <laughs> unethical, sorry.
0: Yeah. Some, uh, unethical, <laughs> ethical, sorry. Ethics concerns. Yeah, that makes sense. That, that it's impossible to talk about them all. But yeah, I think it's because we've just allowed the natural progression of the human behaviour. And I feel like there are so many parallels that you can draw from real life experiences and real life situations. Because it's true when you look at, you know, even with the example of the prisoners switching on each other, the ones that are rebellious believe that the other ones are snitches. When you look at, for instance, especially in America, the prison system, when you've ever watched documentaries, that's what it is. It's all about the group as a collective. Who are the outsiders? Who do we think are, are going to be ratting to prison guards? And I think it's, it's yeah, it's a natural progression of of the human behaviour that we allowed to, to kind of be carried right. out. I would have been super interested to see as to whether or not he hadn't have had the interference what would have happened by day 14. Because I think that this experiment could have killed someone.
1: Yeah, I think so. And, and I do wonder, as good an intention as the experiment is, and again, this is great, you know, being able to look at, when did you say this was? Was this the 50s? 70s. 70s, sorry. So, you know, 50 years later, it's great looking at it with expert eyes, of course. But if you were picked, say, to be a prisoner and you know it's an experiment, do you think you'd be more willing to act outlandishly because it is an experiment and you've been picked as a prisoner, so you're more likely... So, so what I'm trying to say is you've actually been arrested in real life and you're put in prison. You might not react the same yeah. way because you're, in, you're intimidated, you're scared, you're frightened, whatever, depending on what you've done, of course. But you know you're in an experiment as Prisoner 125. Are you going to say, right, well, I'm going to give shit to the guards and I'm because gonna... it's an experiment, right? Yeah, this is true. I, I, I think that
0: that probably was the promotion for the issues on day two, which was the first proper day that they'd had in there. So obviously, day two. yeah, literally, they turned around and started to rebel. They refused to come out of their cells, that sort of thing. So I think that that could have promoted the initial initial rebellion if that makes sense because they're like oh well part of an experiment is not really real however i think after that point when the prison guards then quelled that and then began to use physical violence and like basically what would have been methods of psychological and physical torture um i think that everything after that point was probably legitimate as you could have been i think i think that the trigger for it was obviously artificial in the fact that they thought it was an experiment but the progression of the behavior was perfectly natural i think
1: yeah, I do think there's definitely, as you said, there's def- definitely ethical things around this one. I'm not sure what my view on it is, because I think, to me, it almost feels like it's achieving the same aim of the Milgram one that we mentioned last week. So if if you weren't listening last week, Lou, Lou bought the case. It was where, cut the long story short, where a person was set up to believe they were administering progressively stronger electric shock current to someone, wasn't it, when they weren't. And would they go to a, se- a severe level? You're kind of doing the same thing here, aren't you? In terms of seeing, would you, how far would you be willing to go to potentially treat someone as a prisoner, or show respect to a guard? But you're just allowing more havoc and chaos to happen. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. But again, do you not think that sometimes it's necessary, not necessary, I shouldn't say that, not necessary, but do you not think that it's kind of like a necessary evil to get the best example of what human behaviour can be?
1: Yeah, I don't know, because I think we know what human behaviour can be. Um, I, I don't know if we are, what's the word, if we are biased, because these are historical events, and they have produced such famous results uh it's easy to say you didn't need to do that now but maybe that's because these things have happened and the results are known. yeah do, do, do you see what i'm trying to say i guess it's almost like um my example at the start here where you could be led into thinking one way or the other by experience or, or something yeah i i don't know i i think this was a bit extreme well it was very extreme i from what you said i think certain behaviors should have been quelled a lot sooner and I think the fact that if you've got people, their own parents worried about them when they're going to visit them does make you think how how badly
0: they were affected. Yeah, I think that's probably what the main concern was. Obviously, some prisoners had expressed concerns and the experiment wasn't ended. It was allowed to continue until people had what were, whether you believe them or not, legitimate or or not, um, mental breakdowns. So I think that that was probably the the biggest problem. But again, if you're going to recreate the situation of a prison are you going to have moments in which, of course, you don't want to be in prison? That's just a legitimate way in which prison works. You are literally agreeing in by virtue of the fact that you're agreeing to be a prisoner to be held against your will. So again, kind of what limit do you accept that you need to turn around and, and kind of take away a bit of a person's choice depending on what they're saying to you? Because, you know, I imagine every person that goes to prison legitimately says, oh, I don't want to be here, can I leave? Oh, you know.
1: <laughs> well... My view is what is and isn't now allowed under the guise of a psychological experiment? I mean, are we saying because we're doing it as an experiment we can subject you to anything now? Or, or then. Is that 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 almost feels like what we're saying here. Yeah. Because what what I'm trying what I mean is that you say you're trying to recreate a prisoner. So if you're saying right, you are accepting to be a prisoner in a prison, that doesn't necessarily mean that you know you have got to be punished by God. Gu- do, do you see? I mean, it's not. It's still not real. It's not a real prison. Is yeah, it?
0: yeah.
1: I get you. I guess I'm trying to say, what levels now are we saying would or wouldn't have been allowed under the, not the pretense because that makes it sound like it's fake, but under the guise of yeah, this is for for a social experiment.
0: Yeah, I think well back then they did have like ethics to an extent, and in actual fact, I did read that the circumstances of the study actually contravened the contracts that the students had with the university um, about being able to withdraw and that sort of thing. Um, do you know what the psychological, like ethical principles are the current ones? No, okay. No. So there's, we actually learned about these in a level and that's all flooding back to me. This is brilliant. Um, So informed consent. So this is basically that you're being informed of the situations of the experiment and all of the parameters, that sort of thing. And you're consenting to agree to that situation. Um, a debrief so this is the ability to turn around and talk about the results of and your experiences in the experiment afterwards and um, the protection of the participants now this is basically protection from psychological and physical harm um, doesn't really need to be explained any further than that deception now that's obviously a lot to do with Milgram obviously I don't think you'd be allowed to be getting away with that point point. Um, and this is yeah. basically that you're not deceiving anyone as to the intended what you're trying to find out from the experiment so you shouldn't be telling them this is what we're trying to find out but this is actually what we're finding out confidentiality for obvious reasons and again a big problem with the zimbardo one the right to withdrawal so you should have the ability to withdraw from any psychological experiment at any time and there should be no questions asked basically Absolutely, yeah but again just do you think that maybe we lose part of the ability to to observe human behavior based on ethics then at all do you think that they're or do you think that there's no no loss? So do you think that as a result of ethical considerations, we lose the ability to understand some elements of human behaviour?
1: I think you do. And I think that's why everything we've mentioned, there is critical analysis. If we go as, as simple as my example at the start here, that they were all students, you know, it's not necessarily an ethical one, but what I'm trying to say is every psychological experiment Is going to have a critical analysis of why it's not valid in the real world. I absolutely think if you're not treated, because you can never give somebody a real prison experience unless you subject them to potentially some horrible things, right? Now, you can't do that in all willingness, I think. But I'm like, yes. My, My short answer is yes. I think you do lose something. And I think, but you have to have that. See,
0: Because to me, do you know, we talked about television before. What's that American show that's like 60 Days Inside? Because that puts people in prison. Um, I think it's like a show in the States where they basically put somebody in a prison and they just have to try and fit in. And obviously they're exposed to like people having fights and being threatened or being bullied and that sort of thing. And producers have previously pulled people out of cells and out of prison. Um, I don't know, blocks. Um, because they feared for the safety of people but again in my mind uh, we're looking at that as entertainment and because it's not being classed as a psychological experiment do you need to have the same concerns as et- for ethics as if a university was to do that now because again to me the circumstances aren't really any different except you're actually putting that person in a genuine prison environment to see how they get on Thing it's different though
1: because yeah they would absolutely be pulled out if there's a problem because i think the 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 insurance claims against them would be astronomical and, and out of this world. I, I So I think they're almost in a better scenario, even though they're in a real prison, because I think they know if there's any chance of danger, I think they're going to be pulled out. Whereas we're almost saying for this one, take normal people and just let them do what the hell
0: they want. Yeah, I guess so. But then again, even with this, this show that's on TV, if you can catch an episode, would definitely recommend it because now that we've talked about this, it'd be good for, you to see what I'm talking about. But even in the show, when they pull pull people out, they can't remove them at particular times because it looks too suspicious. So there are instances in which they've allowed people to stay in blocks, even though there's a potential danger to them because they don't want further danger to happen later on as a result of them being pulled out at a time when that would never happen in that environment. So this is the thing for me. The way that I look at these experiments is are we just doing this nowadays, but just in different forms? Because of the effect that we're having on people like you've looked uh, there are people on that program that have literally legitimately had breakdowns we did what's that show where you put kids in prison in front of prisoners and you get prisoners to shout at them and they have to sit in a
1: oh i've seen what's that called
0: um somebody please help us um in a review on this episode (laughs) that show there where they've turned around and put again children in a prison and i know that it's a controlled environment but they are trying to recreate an experience of prison for kids which they are doing and causing horrific stress and potential harm to these kids. But on the premise that it's a TV show, we're looking at it and thinking, oh, that's fine.
1: In that instance, I think the ethics is more on the viewer than the person. Because if you signed up to go into a real prison, then you know what you're getting yourself into. I guess you still there's an element of you thinking, well, they won't let me come to real harm. But if you've signed up to an experiment where you're just being told you're going to be a prisoner, you're going to be a guard, there might be a bit of rough stuff, but we'll, we'll calm it down. But then you let bad stuff happen.
0: Yeah,
1: I think the ethics is on you as the experimenter. But I think for the prison shows, I think then the ethics are on us because it's us that are letting that happen. And it's for our viewing habit. So is it not the viewer that should be judged then rather than? The person in the
0: show no 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 no. i can't I, I think that there has to th- when you draw parallels for instance between 60 days inside or whatever it is and look at zimbardo was the organizer of the experiment and the producer of the show who sits there and organizes the logistics there isn't much of a difference between those two characters there isn't much of a difference between the person that you put in a real prison environment versus the prison environment that you've created um i just think that in my mind that's sorry, but that's exactly what I'm saying.
1: Though, but the, the the one difference being, the producer is doing it for audience ratings. So I think it's the audience that are being judged or should be judged in that instance. That, that's what. I, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that, get, that producer is just doing it for fun. Yeah. Just doing it for money.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know what's more fucked up as to whether or not you're doing it for psychological research or for pleasure or for the ability to watch a TV show that you like. I feel like all three of them are a little bit abhorrent, but I feel like the psychological research reason is the least abhorrent of all of them.
1: (laughs) I kind of agree with you, but the problem that I think people will have with the experiment is potentially the lengths to which they let people behave. It speaks about a lot of reality shows is is it the viewer that's allowing these things to happen? Because they've got an appetite for seeing these weird and wonderful shows.
0: I will ask you a question then. Do you think that in the modern day, given all of the psychological ethics considerations that I've read, do you think that it would be possible for a person to fully consent to the original Stanford prison experiment. So for them to turn around and say, do you think it would be possible for them to consent? I will spend 14 days in a prison. I understand that I will be locked away for 14 days and will have no contact with the outside world. do you think that it's possible to ethically conduct that study nowadays? As long as the information's said correctly to the person who's taking part, obviously.
1: So so sorry, so is the question whether I think ethically it should happen or do you think people would No, do, sign yeah. Up do you to think do it, that
0: sorry. ethically you can do that experiment nowadays? You can say to a person and a person can consent to being locked away for fourteen days and turning around and saying, Irrespective of what I say in those fourteen days, I understand that I will not be allowed to leave for fourteen days.
1: I'm gonna say no. And the reason I say no is, caveat it, of course, with two things. One, it depends what is the end goal of it. What are you trying to find out? There has to be something really valid now to put people through that. And it can't just be, oh, will we think we want to see?" this? If there's an absolute ironclad societal reason for doing it, then you could say there's, there's an ethical reason there. Two... It would have to be that again. You giving the the people the ability to come out when they want, and you have to stop. You, you still have to stop, and that's why that's why it will never be real life unless you do let people do what they they want to do. What comes up in that scenario, and that's where I think you can't. I think ethically, I don't think you can, because as as an observer, surely you're going to want to stop seeing someone potentially severely be violent against someone. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I I I kind of half agree with you but again like I said I think that when we look at a lot of these experiments that are all the unethical ones we always look and what people always say and what you always read about them. some of the most influential research ever conducted into like the human mind or whatever it might be with a particular aspect of behaviour that you're looking at and all of these experiments have come from a time at which ethics was more loose if there was basically any at all that was applicable. I think nowadays there can be a tail off Again, you know, I don't think that you should allow someone to get battered by a fake prison guard, but is there going to be an element of stress and or potential harm to a person in any kind of experiment you do? I think there is. I think that there's par- parallels that can be drawn between if if we were going and, and applying the same principles to what we see a lot in in terms of entertainment. I think that there's a lot of t- shows on TV that in reality shouldn't be there for the same reasons. I just don't know why we draw the difference between like an entertainment show versus something that's being used for for kind of behavior observation.
1: Oh, I agree. No, I I agree. And that's why I'm saying with the TV shows, it shouldn't be the participants that are judged. I think it's the viewers, (laughs) honestly do. What I would say, though, is obviously, though, psychology has come on leaps and bounds since then. So do you necessarily need to do experiments like that? or, Or do we not have methods and tools that we can get the answers we need? I think, yeah, to sum it up, if you're doing it, you have to do it with some limitations in which would detract from... The spirit of what the experiment is trying to do yeah okay i can get on board and i think like we said does the fact we have these mean we don't have to do them anymore because we can look back and say right well they were out of order to do it but through them doing that we've gained some valuable insight
0: yeah yeah that's true i think that that's probably a decent benefit
1: right well we've spoken a lot already on the on this i've i've got one i did tease one What should we do? Should we go through them or do we come back at some later point and do a third? I've got the one that was described as the most unethical. If this
0: is what I'm thinking about and if it's what I've discussed, and I'm winking at Dan right now on camera as if it's like something that we'd (laughs) mentioned,
1: (laughs) I'm not sure if we did. Okay, it's called the Little Albert. Yeah, okay, yeah. I I think
0: you should run through this one.
1: What I'll do though is I'll do it really quickly, I think. So this was in 1920 at John Hopkins University. As mentioned, said to be amongst the most unethical. And the reason being is the hypothesis was that through a series of experiments, they could condition a nine-month-old baby to develop an irrational fear. This fit. one is
0: really sick, is it?
1: Yeah. So it was uh, John Watson and Rosalie Rayner. Their aim was to condition a phobia in an emotionally stable child. For this study, they chose a nine-month-old infant from the hospital. The child was referred to as Albert for the experiment and Watson followed the procedures which Pavlov had used in the experiments with dogs. Before the experiment, Albert was given a series of baseline emotional tests. The infant was exposed briefly for the first time to a white rat, a rabbit, a dog, a monkey, masks with and without hair, cotton, wool, burning newspapers and other stimuli. Albert showed no fear of any of these during the baseline tests. But the experiment proper, by which point he was 11 months old, he was put on a mattress on a table in the middle of a room. A white laboratory rat was placed near Albert and he was allowed to play with it. At this point, Watson and Rayner made loud sound behind Albert's back by striking a suspended steel bar with a hammer each time the baby touched the rat. Albert responded to the noise by crying and showing fear. After several such pairings of the noise to the rat, Albert was presented with only the rat. Upon seeing it, he became very distressed, crying and crawling away. Apparently, the infant infant associated the white rat with the noise. Originally, a neutral stimulus had now become a conditioned stimulus and was eliciting an emotional response similar to distress. They then did go on a bit further with some other experiments. So... Little Albert seemed to generalise his response to the white rat. He became distressed at the sight of several other furry objects such as a rabbit, a furry dog and even a Santa Claus mask with white cotton balls on the beard. However, the stimulus didn't extend to everything with hair. The experiment had many failings by modern standards. For example, it had only a single subject and no control subjects. And Furthermore, such an experiment could be hard to conduct in compliance with current laws and regulations. Albert was a one-year-old one year at the end of the experiments and he reportedly left the hospital shortly thereafter. Though Watson had discussed what might be done to remove the conditioned fears, he chose not to attempt such desensitisation with Albert and it thought that, likely, the infant's fear of furry things continued post-experiment. Watson later gave a series of weekend lectures describing Little Albert's study. One of these lectures was attended by Mary Carver-Jones, which sparked her interest in pursuing graduate work in psychology. She conducted an experiment to figure out how to eliminate fear responses in children and studied a boy named Peter who was two years old. Peter shared similar fears of white rabbits as little Albert. Jones was able to increase Peter's tolerance of white rabbits by exposing him to the animal known as direct conditioning and having Peter interact with children who were not afraid of the rabbit. There were attempts, I'm not going to talk about it or mention the names, there were attempts to identify the baby of who was called Little but which I'm not sure should have been done or not. The only reason I mention that is because one of them, the, the criticism was that, you know, this was said to be a healthy baby, but one of the potential identified people actually died at 11 years old because they had a brain issue. And so they saying, well, this can't be... It, it's horrible talking about it like this because you're, you're you're boiling it down saying this can't be a good experiment because this child wasn't healthy. You're then avoiding what the experiment actually did. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bad experiment, really, wasn't it? What's what's your view on on the little album?
0: I think this one's bad only because it's young, young child and there is the intention of the experiment is to inflict psychological harm. So this is is unlike the others. For me, where the others have had the intention of identifying something not positive about human behavior, but a, a, a particular instance in which we can learn from human behaviour the intention behind this one whilst technically doing that predominantly had the effect of harming a child so to me this one would never pass in my mind because the intention all along from the outset is to make a child so traumatised that they develop an irrational fear and that's why I don't, I just don't think I could pass this one.
1: Th- that's it because the other person they found or potentially linked to it was a Guy who died, I think, in his eighties, and and it was only because the granddaughter, I think, recognised that this this person had a fear of this and that, and would have been in round that area at the time. And if that's the case, then that person, like you said, yeah, has had this fear all their life. They have put in a fear, and and that's what it is to me. One, it's a child who couldn't have, and if I remember right, when I was reading it, there's also potentially that the mother of the child didn't know that this was happening. Yeah,
0: yeah, you're right.
1: So. You've got a child that's not aware um, and couldn't sign up to it. A mother who wasn't aware and didn't sign up to it. And you're not just saying to him, right, go to this camp and and compete with this other group for a a, a pocket knife. You're putting a phobia into them. While there's a scientific finding to say that you can do that, it's, it's that classic thing. Just because you can do something... Should you? Yeah,
0: because you wouldn't have seen an experiment. Like, would we have seen, mind you, it kind of reminds me, I can't remember what the experiment is called now, but it's like the monkey one. Do you know where they tested the, um, like, affection of monkeys as to whether or not they choose, like, a clothed mother or a wire mother that gave them food? Oh, yeah, of. there's a. we'll yeah. have to talk about this in now a further episode now because I've got so many examples. <laughs> would you part three? <laughs> but, yeah, it reminds me of that. And where was I going with this point? I've like completely lost my chain of thought thinking about mummies. Because I said
1: about just because you can do doesn't something. It doesn't mean that you should. should yeah, be. yeah.
0: And that's that's the thing for me. I think with this one, you wouldn't, in, you wouldn't try to set out in an experiment to give someone depression, would you? You wouldn't put them in circumstances I, no. where we're like, we're going to make this person clinically depressed or we're going to make this person clinically, again, insert whatever um, kind of like mental effect you want to stimulate on a person. You wouldn't turn around and give them any other psychological condition why would you turn around and do it with fear? And that's the thing. I think that if you change the context of this one and apply the f- irrational fear with something like depression, even at the time, that probably would have been horrifically unethical. So, yeah, I, I just don't think yeah. that this one, this one passes at all. I think it's. Very yeah.
1: And, and also, yeah, OK, right. You know, it's not like depending on what the favour is, but that person you know rats are fairly common right in the world
0: but but, but the thing is also do we do we not just already like did we not just already know that we're not born with any fears inherently so did we not know that of course all fears can be are experience based as opposed to genetic ones i think if there's only two we talked about this in a fears episode didn't we i think i think we did in phobia yeah was yeah, it yeah. one of them was phobia. was it heights and the other one was like um falling or something like it that was ho-
1: Heights was it? Heights and fire or heights? Oh, I was can't it heights remember.
0: in the dark. It was something really? like that. But anyway, it was too... Oh, it's the, it the dark. It was the wasn't dark. It? I think yeah. But two things that you can't control. The evolutionary make the evolutionary kind of explanations make sense. Um, whereas with this, it's like yeah, of course we know that people aren't born with a fear of spiders. They just have an aversion to spiders when they're growing up because they have a bad experience with. Sp- Do you know what I mean? It's to me, it just felt yeah. like something that yeah. didn't even need to happen. Because it's just you know I, I don't know it was
1: just, I yeah, just think the song it's, was it's stupid. It's, I get it, and and you know 1920, so it's it's it was really early yeah. on as well, wasn't it? So I guess yeah yeah. Anyway, on that right. really depressing. <laughs> no. You know, it is heavy, but I think it's just to show kind of as humans what we what we have been capable of in the past. Yeah, I guess isn't this it? This true, very
0: true. You know
1: sorry yeah i know you had another one but i don't think we'll get through it yeah no
0: don't worry about it if need be we can always come back to this as a as another topic and we could potentially do a part yeah. three because there is actually so many interesting ones to talk about I, I had a load on like weapons and that sort of thing which would have been quite cool but we might yeah. come back to them at some
1: point. okay well we'll come back to it but let's let's have a bit of distance i think from this <laughs> let's talk about so <laughs> probably a few things right thank you for listening if you want to get in touch with us, you can contact us on Twitter at Casting Views. You can drop us an email at castingviewspod at gmail.com. And we'll leave you with, we know there's a lot of podcasts from which you can choose. So we thank you for listening to Casting Views. Two, three, four. If I
0: want your opinion, I will give it to you. Come on, check what we've got cause you need it. Don't make us get a spark and force feed it. Come on.